Morning Refuge. I'm Pastor Rusty. It is good to be back. Uh, If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them to the book of Romans, chapter 15. We have 21 verses to cover, which is about two minutes each, so strap on, and I hope you brought a snack. Uh, We might be here for a minute. My task today is to close us out in Christ local. To kind of bring home everything that we've been talking about in this yearly vision series as we try to kind of launch into this new school year, this new year for most of us. And so we've talked about vision, we've talked about mission, talked about covenant community, the role of elders, deacons, now for us, right? What we are as a people has been answered in covenant community. Pastor Jeff showed us how covenant community specifically helps us in our sanctification, how it reflects the nature of God with us as a communing, a confirmed, a committed and commissioned people. That's what we are. And so that was an argument for why we're here and what we want to explore today is what are we supposed to do? To put some flesh onto Pastor Jeff's exhortations to draw near, to hold fast, to stir up. Similar to the roles of elders and deacons, now we explore the role of the church. What are we supposed to be about? What are we doing? Now, make no mistake, the church has an enormous role in the story of the cosmos. As far as the scriptures are concerned, the church is the vehicle by which God brings the gospel to the world. Paul's great attention to the concerns of the church, to the the infighting of the church, to the structure of the church, just here in Romans, let alone the rest of his letters, just the sheer great amount of time devoted to church affairs is indicative of its fundamental theological significance. The fact that it is what it is is a theological statement all on its own. The church matters. The church is a people. I think it's important first for us to recognize that as we describe the church, we recognize that these five identities that we're talking about today are defining and drawing the line of what our culture is. Particularly the fact that we are citizens, and as a group of citizens, we have our own culture here. Now, a lot of times in preaching, we talk about we live in a culture that blah, 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 or or their culture out there. We talk about that in our applications. But the question today is, what is our culture as a church, as refuge, It's tremendously easy to borrow culture, to pick and choose what we like, what we don't like, try to incorporate those things into who we want or wish to be. But we're not just citizens of any country. We are citizens of a kingdom. You're just saying that. We're citizens of a kingdom. And this kingdom is bigger than us. It's bigger than a refuge. Even though we will have our own expression of it. The kingdom is so big, so other, it isn't even of this earth. This kingdom is a kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom not of flesh and blood, but of spirit. Indeed, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 15 of his first letter. Only those born again, born of water and the Spirit, can enter the kingdom of God, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. And, like any other kingdom, this kingdom has a king. (laughs) That's what makes it a kingdom. All kingdoms have kings, but our king is a resurrected king. He's the king of kings. One Lord who reigns and rules. He tells us what the kingdom is like. He tells us who may enter. He tells us how to obey as a kingdom citizen. And our resurrected ruler has brought us to life from death. He's resurrected, and he has brought us from life to death, and one day we will be resurrected as well. We fear not death, as our king has defeated it. And so we wage war as a kingdom against Sin, putting it to death with the old man, walking in repentance and faith, putting on the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Paul has just outlined two chapters earlier in chapter 13. And so church, 
You are a resurrected kingdom citizen. Refuge is full of resurrected kingdom citizens. And it's time that we act like it. This is what our culture is. These are our identities. This is what defines what we do because of who we are. Now listen, as we walk through these five identities today, don't misinterpret. They are not verbs, okay? They're not adjectives. They're not describing what you're like. They're not telling you what to do. They are nouns. They are what they are. You are what they are. You don't get better at servanting. You be a servant. I can serve all day long and still be serving myself. And that does not a servant make. Christ calls us to be a servant. You don't get better at family-ing. You are family. You are a son of the king, a co-heir with Christ. And so these nouns affect the whole, the whole of our life. We don't get to pick and choose. Our other identities do not supersede these ones. I am a husband and a father and an elder and, and many other things, but I belong to Jesus first and foremost. And I submit everything else I am to these five identities. I appreciate what Tim Keller says in his commentary on Galatians, where I spent most of my sabbatical. He says that Christianity is an appeal to bring our whole life, mind, and heart to Christ. That's the appeal. To leave out how we think or how we feel is to give an incomplete picture of how comprehensive Christian commitment is. It's a lot more than we think. Now, if you're trying to memorize them, usually I memorize the five identities in this order. Learner, worshiper, family, servant, witness. That's where we're going today. We're going to do it out of order uh, because I'm trying to make sense of this passage. I think it walks better this way. So let's talk about our culture as resurrected kingdom citizens. We are God's chosen family. We're family. We're all children of God who care for each other as a family. First thing that I want you to see as family is that we are to bear and build. We're to bear and build. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I'm going to throw you a curveball on verse 1. I think that there is a, a little bit better translation of, of verse 1. It says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. To, to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. It comes from the CSB. So to bear. Those who have strength have been given it in order to use it to help others, not to suit themselves. It is an obligation. We who are strong have an obligation. It's a responsibility to care for the weak, to help them. Not to bear as in tolerate, as in to put up with, as to, oh yeah, that guy, you know. To bear, to, to hold, to assist, to come alongside and help. You see, the, the, the weak may be weak in faith, legitimately weak, and faith, but Paul recognizes that they are still of the family of faith. Now, it's not always as easily apparent who are the weak and who are the strong. In the family, it's not always easy to pick out who the strong one is and who the weak one are. It's not like at the gym when, you know, one person is putting up as much as they can and the bench next to them has the same weight and he's just warming up with it, right? There's a pretty clear difference there when it comes to Strength, but here, strong in like what? Weak in, in what? Doesn't matter how long I've been a Christian, doesn't matter how old I am as a human or in the faith, which Bible I had memorized, what does it mean to be strong? What does it mean to be weak? Now, Paul's been talking about this for several chapters beforehand, and we're kind of landing on his conclusion. But to, to cut to the chase, it's faith. 
particularly in that which involves justification, what you believe surrounding why you are justified. And Paul sees the weak as weak. It's not good for them. It's not good for them to be weak. It's an unnecessary remaining bondage or tripping hazard. But he recognizes it as a reality. They are still of the faith. They are still in the family. And so the strong, who he recognizes as more fully free, are to help hold the weight. That's why I like the CSB better here. Given that weakness is equated with their faith level, it's not failed faith. They have faith. It's not failed. It's insufficient strength. Insufficient strength, similar to Galatians 6.1. You who are spiritual, you who are strong, should help those who are weak. Be careful that you don't fall into the same temptation. They have faith. It's just insufficient for strength. Now, you might be saying, well, it's not really fair, right? I mean, why should I slow down? Why should I hold my weight and yours? I was really struggling (laughs) with this before my sabbatical. It's hard. It's hard, first and foremost, not to just outright please yourself, right? To use your strength for your own good. But even then, it's another step to have to use your strength to bear the load for another or another's. We'll come come back to this picture in a moment. Now, in seeking to bear with and serve them, this does not mean that the weak control the church, right? We have to please them, please your neighbor, as if they can permanently tie the church to their level and that life and growth would cease because we are trapped in caring just for the weak. One commentator says this, I think it's helpful. This isn't a rule of conduct, it's a principle of tender concern. There's a rule of conduct, and the weak in the church, again, legitimately believers, put forth a scruple, a concern, and the strong have to bear it and become tied to that weakness that Paul has just been talking about keeps us from running at the pace that we're supposed to run. It's not that. It is a principle of tender concern. We care for them, come alongside, and lift the burden. He says to please his neighbor, each of us, Paul includes himself in this, should please his neighbor. This isn't man-pleasing that Jesus rails against. This isn't that. What it is, is caring for them, tender concern. This is set immediately within these parameters of what is for his good. You want to know what the confines of it means to come alongside and bear the weight for somebody else? It has to be for that other person's good. This has to be applied with care because great harm can come when Christians assume that they know what is good and best for themselves. We all think that we know what is good and right and best for ourselves. This requires great humility and discernment for both parties, not just the one who is weak, but for the one who is strong, to make sure that you're helping in such a way that's actually good for them. We have to be mindful that it's very easy to please people by doing or permitting something that's actually really harmful to them in the long run. A genuine concern for the weak will mean an attempt to make them strong by leading them out of their irrational scruples so that they too will be strong we build them up we bear and build that's what it means to be family you bear and build listen i'm not just going to hold your load it's your responsibility i have a responsibility to help god will judge me for that but this is your load. He'll judge you for that. Now, I'm not going to judge your ability. I could care less how many reps you can throw up, okay? I'm not judging your ability. Paul and Jesus make that very clear. That's between you and God. But I am going to hold the load in such a way that is for your good. Here's the desire. One day, you can hold it, and you can help others. I guess the question is still, do you know if you're the strong one or the weak one, right? Let me tell you a a story. We're on our sabbatical. We are in Florida. There's a small pool in the backyard. Inside of that pool is on a separate layer is this little 
supposed to be a hot tub, but it's very cold. Um, that's seating for adults, right? The kids play in there because it's a lot more shallow. Jess and I are on the other side talking, and all of a sudden she sees, well, she does her yelp, right? The mom yelp. I won't ask her to make it. Um, and we look across, and there's a little bit of hair sticking over the water. Ruth has gotten into there without her puddle jumper. So I'm Michael Phelps across the pool. She does her, like, worry walk without slipping around to the edge and pull her out of the water. And she's breathing. She's fine. She'd been kicking. She had, right? And say, are you okay? You were drowning. Mommy, I was swimming. And then it hit, right? No. No, you weren't. Another few seconds, and you'd be done swimming. It is a terrifying picture to think that someone could take a breath, jump in, be kicking, have their eyes open, see where they're going, be this close to the ledge, think that they're going to get there and going to come up for air only to drown. And I just, I worry that the ones that are drowning right now can't hear me because your ears are underwater. Worse yet, I wonder how many people are on the side of the pool with their mojito and their book and their hat and they don't realize that someone's drowning. Or worse, they see it and they can't be bothered. It's not what family does. Are you drowning? Are you watching someone drown? So why, why bear and build? Why such a big argument? Why am I spending so much time on this weak thing? It's because he's been talking about it for several chapters. This is a big deal. This is a big deal for what comes next in trying to model Christ. Why bear and build? It's because so that instead of failing the weak or selfishly looking out for our own sake, the strong, we may live in harmony. As family, we are to live in harmony. Let's skip to verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. Paul just leaps into a prayer in verse 5. He says, live in such harmony. To have the same attitude of mind in the NIV. To have the same mind in the NASB. Literal translation would be to mind the same thing. This is not identity or unity of opinion, okay? Families have lots of opinions, okay? Even in, even in this chapter, right? The strong and the weak do not agree on a number of things. Some believe it's okay to eat something, and some say it's not. Of which the weak are legitimately wrong. Yet even still, they can be prayed for in this way to have harmony, to mind the same thing. I like those other versions for understanding this, the point better, but I appreciate the picture, the illustration of the ESV, of the idea of harmony. Now, I'm a drummer, okay, and a, and a bassist, so, you know, take my musical theory here for, you know, what it is. A G, I know this much, on the musical scale is not the same as a B, Right? Most of y'all play music, and you can be like, yeah, that makes sense, right? It's not the same as a D. If you play a G and a B, they ain't the same, like at all. But together, though, G, B, D, boom. A triad, a chord, right? It is beautiful. It's more than the sum of its parts. It's, it's different, but it's heavenly. 
And if you're Chris Tomlin, then a G chord is lucrative, but <laughs> it's a heavenly thing to have these disparate pieces come together and play something that's so much more beautiful than what they are on their own. That is what it means to be in harmony. And how do they get like this? Well, if you look at the text, it says they are in a chord, right? <laughs> yeah, y'all missed me, I know. Uh, with Christ Jesus, they're in a chord with Christ Jesus. Fortunately, it's not by our efforts, because I can't sing on pitch. You'll see that at the end today. It's not us figuring out our stuff, a community project. It's not unanimity. I can't say that word. I practice it. In itself, as people often will agree together in error. He's praying for the unity that accords with Christ. And that is a unity that only God alone can give. Christian unity, Christian family, is fundamentally grounded on Jesus Christ. We are in harmony as we are in accord with Jesus Christ. The more we agree with Him and about Him, the more we will agree with one another. That is what family is. Now, that's a tall order. How do we do that? We are learners, leading and making new disciples. We are learners. Leading and making new disciples. Learner. This is from our our membership handbook. We are learners of Jesus who take responsibility for our growth in the gospel and the growth of others. Disciples making disciples. First aspect of learner. Perseverance and comfort of the scriptures. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance or perseverance and through the encouragement or comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. As we'll see in a bit, Paul's argument for us bearing is rooted in Jesus's example, verse three. But in displaying this example of Jesus, he doesn't use any of the numerous examples from Jesus' life. Seems like there's a litany of things that he could pick just from Jesus's life to help illustrate him as the example. But instead, Paul simply quotes scripture. He refers to the Old Testament, to Psalms. For him, the Bible ends all argument. If there's a relevant passage, then he need do no more than draw attention to it. And that's what he does now. Appreciate seeing this play out in my life is very weak. Pastor Jeff was talking with me about some other things, and he, he said, Scriptures are the only rule. What should we do? What should, should we do this? Should we do that? And he, Scriptures are the only rule. The Old Testament, Paul says in verse 4, was written for our instruction. The Scriptures are for our instruction. That's what you're getting today. That's what you do when you read on your own. That's what you get on Tuesday and Wednesday night. That's what you get in DNA. The Scriptures are for your instruction. If you don't know the Scriptures, then you don't know God. It is that simple. Paul reveals the truth of the gospel here in Jesus Christ, verse 3, with the Scriptures. He appeals to the Scriptures. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as an apostle writing Scripture himself, he appeals to what was already written. That's fascinating. That's important. Listen, if you don't know the Scriptures, you will not persevere. You will not make it. If you do not know the scriptures, you will not seek harmony. Instead, you'll be discordant. Not in accord, but discordant. Instead of being a B, you'll be a B flat. and It'll make this really uncomfortable chord called a minor chord. I'm sure you'll sit there drowning, calling it jazzy. But it's just not right. You don't know the scriptures, you won't be comforted. The point is this, my friends, you need the word. You need the word. God has chosen to reveal himself as the word. You don't get to decide if you like that or not. You get to be wise or foolish, as the writer of Proverbs says. It doesn't matter if you're not a reader doesn't matter if you have trouble reading. You put your nose in the Scriptures. 
The Holy Spirit is the one that reveals them to you. This is how the weak become strong. If you're bearing the load of a weak brother or sister, you do it with the Word. This is how the strong will persevere and endure and get to the end. If you want to know what comforts this comfort idol, it's the Word. Upon this rock I stand. It lights my path. It shows me the way through suffering. It's not a mere intellectual exercise so that I might know more. I need it. Without it, I am hopeless. One commentator said this. It says the Scriptures impart to us comfort in the midst of our trials so that we might have hope. That is the function and purpose of Scripture according to the Apostle. Again, the direction of Paul's thought indicates that in his citation of Psalm 69, that's verse 3, he has in view the larger context of the psalm. What's the larger context? What's he, what's he rooting his argument for and appealing to the Old Testament? The final vindication implicitly experienced by Christ himself. Christ was vindicated in Psalm 69. It turns to hope. And the vindication that Christ had is our comfort and our hope. That's why you're a learner. I don't know if you look at the list of identities and be like, yeah, I'm good at the other ones. Learner, you know, I'll get there. You won't. (laughs) You won't get anywhere. Perseverance and comfort of the Scriptures because it leads to hope. Full of goodness for hope is our next point. Verse 4. That through the Scriptures, we might have hope. This instruction is something larger and greater than mere knowledge. The Scripture has been written in order to impart hope, which does not signify mere intellectual imagination or apprehension. Catch this. We possess hope through perseverance and the comfort of Scriptures. This is the reason that so many people do not have hope. Looking everywhere else but to the One who has secured it for you for hope. It's not just information. Earlier in chapter 5 of Romans, 1-5, through Paul already indicated that hope is possessed through perseverance. You don't start with hope, you possess it through perseverance. Not in the sense that hope's a result of our own endurance, but rather that through perseverance we come to possess more fully the hope that was already ours. You are given hope. And you possess it more fully and understand it deeper and lean on it harder as you continue in perseverance and endurance. This is such a a, a powerful piece. You know how often in counseling and discipleship that I just say the same thing three times? I I do that a lot in preaching and teaching. I usually do it in a different way. But you say literally the exact same thing three times to someone. You, You start to see it finally unlock. Their face changes, their posture, the burden. To say, hey, resurrected kingdom citizens, you already have hope. You already have hope. What are you looking for? You already have hope. A terrible burden to have to come face to face and actually encounter the blessing that is already yours in Christ Jesus. (laughs) To deal with the fact that we sit in an embarrassment of riches that our Father has given us and act as if we, of all people, are without hope. I think this is what is so helpful with the four G's, what we use in in our uh, DNA and discipleship. If you're actually using them right, that is... To spend time pounding into your soul the goodness of God. Perseverance. Time after time. Enduring. And an infinite mind to keep digging for that most precious jewel. Is this what you have in mind when when you think of your identity as a learner? Or your task as a Bible reader when you uh, think about the fact that you should read your Bible? Or when you sit down to do it? That you're mining in perseverance 
because of the hope that you have. Or the privilege to know and understand God Himself as He's revealed Himself to be. That takes time. If you've not been doing this, that's okay. Start today. Start today. You might be really sore at the end of it. That's what happens when I neglect doing squats for a while. But I start today. And make it happen. As we say in sports ball, we need reps, more reps, more opportunities, practice, build on each other, learn it over time. Your elders haven't gotten to where they are in a week. In fact, it's a requirement of Scripture for an elder. They're not to be a new believer. Unless they be puffed up, it takes time. If you have identified yourself as one of the weaker ones, praise God. Get in the Scriptures. Walk with someone who wants to help you. And get strong. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. You see Paul's delight in how this results, right? We skipped from, from what, verse 4 to 14. You see where, where he lands. He's delighted in how this results. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Their endurance and comfort in the Scriptures doesn't just fill them up with knowledge, but goodness. It has a point. It has a purpose. This isn't an exercise. They're full of it, right? A knowledge that's actually useful for others. People who can now bear and build for others because they know hope through the Word. That's what it means to be a learner. That's how we be in harmony. You learn the Scriptures. And you walk with each other. And this is what hope does to a person. And you know what we call that? Worship. We're worshipers. We're worshipers of the only true God who understand that all of life is meant to bring worship to God. The first thing in worshipers glorify the God of hope. We've established that we have hope. I hope that has been pressed in. We glorify now. We respond to the God of hope. Verse 6 and 7. Is that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in harmony together and we now glorify with one voice the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. Verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. You see, the triumph of the Christ that Paul implies in verse 3, and I know we haven't talked about it yet, we'll get there, now becomes the central theme for the rest of this passage. In His triumph... The Messiah brings hope to Israel and to the nations, both to Jew and to Gentile. And hope has been brought to you, Jew, to you, Gentile. Hope has come through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to change the way that you read that, okay? I think it's lost its meaning. I'm not trying to add to Scripture. Start throwing rocks at me. When you read, Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to read King Jesus Deliverer. It's really easy to keep calling Jesus Lord without saying, He's my King. That's, that's what it means. It's really easy to use a Greek word, Christ, Christos, and just let it be that. It's another to recognize that it means Messiah, which is in effect our Deliverer. He's King Jesus, the Deliverer. That's why we worship. That's where the hope comes from. That's the Word that has been made flesh and revealed to us. Hope has been brought to you, kingdom citizens, because your King, your Lord, your King has resurrected you and brought you under His rule. Those kind of people, with one voice, glorify God. Those kind of people welcome one another as well. Because this hope 
in God, of which our deliverer gives the pattern or the example of in verse 3, brings love for one another. And we see again that Jesus is our example of that. Therefore, welcome one another, just as the deliverer has welcomed you to the glory of God. Verse 7. We read again this week that they say the reality of love is an essential dimension of glory. The reality of love is an essential dimension of glory that the believing community renders or gives to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Verse 6. He says this, There is no true worship without love. And no true love without worship. Both are given by the hope found in the Messiah, in our Deliverer. If you have been delivered... It is by His love. You can now worship. You should. You must. Do you love Him for the hope that you found in Him? Because if we don't, it's because we are worshiping something else. That is what we talk about and what we mean when we say idolatry. If you are a resurrected kingdom citizen who has hope because of what He has done in you and you are not worshiping Him, it's because you think you got yourself there. It's because I think that I brought myself back to life or that I can keep myself alive. That is idolatry. We put that to death and we render unto God the worship that is deserved because of our King Jesus, the Deliverer. Verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So much hope. (laughs) There's so much hope. It's abounding in it now. Hope's coming out of their ears. We are hopeful people. Our identity, our culture, our task, who we are is to glorify the God of hope. Not just that. We glorify the God of mercy. Glorify the God of mercy. Verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God, what? For His mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul references Psalm 18 here. We're going to be having to talk about that whole middle section of the passage where he's pulling stuff from the Old Testament everywhere. All right? He's referencing Psalm 18 here in verse 9. And it's Jesus saying it. Paul's saying, Jesus says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. Jesus says, I will praise you, God, among the Gentiles and sing to your God name. Paul wants us to know and and bring with us the context of Psalm 18. And as Gentiles, that's a harder thing for us, right? Does anybody have Psalm 18 memorized? Right? Okay. Um, What's the context of Psalm 18? David. David is singing this psalm. He gives praise to Yahweh, to God, for deliverance from his enemies who threatened him with death. And then in a dramatic intervention, the Lord delivered him from death itself because of his righteousness. And as a result, David pursues his enemies and destroys them. And the Lord made him the head of nations, which then came to serve him. He ruled over them. God granted him vengeance and by divine pronouncement placed the people under his rule. And so, on account of this, David praises the Lord, right? The therefore in our verse 9. David praises the Lord among the nations and sings praise to his name. And Paul's use here, the risen Christ is David. The nations that opposed this Christ, Romans chapter 3, have been defeated in his resurrection. They enter into his saving lordship, rulership as conquered enemies, chapter 1. According to Paul's use here then, the risen Messiah confesses and praises the divine name among the Gentiles, doing what? Bringing them salvation. 
Paul meant what he said. He said, I am a Jew of Jews, right? I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He knew the word. So one commentator says this, behind and before the single mouth by which believing Jews and Gentiles glorify God, the one voice, the one harmony, behind that single mouth that we sing to God is the mouth of the Messiah who makes known the name of God to them. There's mercy given to us because God has earned it for us through Jesus Christ and pronounced his name among us. Do you know the mercy of God? That he sought you? That he makes known the name of God to you today? That by this name your sins are forgiven. Salvation is here. It is yours. That is mercy. And those that know mercy have hope. And those that have hope glorify him for his mercy. And so we do it with more than just lip service. We do it by action. Worship and action. Not action for action's sake, but by loving others in a posture and position of servant. We are Jesus' servants. We are servants of Jesus who serve him by serving others around us. The first thing that we are servants of is truth, servants of truth. We're finally going to tackle that that verse 3, okay? You would think that in illustrating Christ as a model for love, the bearing and building thing, right? The family piece at the beginning. And showing us how Jesus did that, And his love for us, you would think that he would talk of his great love for us and showing us how he bared and built for us. But that's not what he does. The example that we are to follow is patterned to us by Christ after his love and devotion for who? The Father. The one true God. The one true ruler over all. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me. Remember how I said it wasn't fair to have to bear others? You see, people were insulting and casting blame on God, and those fell on Jesus. When you serve Jesus, your king people will cast blame on God and it will fall on you. I stand here today catching several of those just this past week. It's not fair. It's not right. When I said it was a challenge leading into my sabbatical, it, it made me want to be done. It made me want to be done. I didn't, I didn't ask for this. It, it certainly doesn't happen in my woodworking. There are many other things that are calling me to serve them, offering all kinds of promises of freedom or reward. I don't want to bear that weight. It's crushing. Especially if you've lost sight of who you're bearing it for. You see, I I lost sight of my king. I lost sight of love. I mean, I've only been back a month now, and I can already feel the stress in my back again. And frankly, I'm not sure how I'll make it another 20, 30, 3 years. But I glorify God for it now. It's an evidence of love. And by his mercy and grace, I will bear it more. Because this is the true and only way to love others well. By serving your king, your Lord. I'm not bearing loads and building up others for my sake. I'm not even doing it for their sake. I'm bearing it in service to my king. I'm bearing it because I know that I was weak once too. We all were. Chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
And so the people who love me best are those who love Jesus first and foremost. Well, maybe you have said you're happy that we're back and you love us. Thank you. But please, love God. <laughs> That's how you love me best. I will love others best when I love Jesus first and most, my true King. But not only are we servants of the true King, but our King is true. He's the true one. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, to the, to the uh, uh, fathers in the Old Testament, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. God is the true one. We submit to and are servants of truth. From the Word, you submit to it. You bring your life in line with it. Under the instruction of the elders, you submit to it. You serve the truth. Under the guiding of the Holy Spirit, you submit to it. You're servants of the truth. This is us bringing all things in our life in line and under truth. I referenced Keller earlier in Galatians. In Galatians 2, he has to rebuke publicly Peter. And, and it's interesting, the language that he's, he uses, he says Paul doesn't see it as rude or unmannered or unwelcoming as we might to be publicly rebuked, right? It's a little rude. I think you could have done it differently. It was a little unmannered. It's not very welcoming, Paul. But fundamentally, he sees that something deeper is going on. Peter is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, He goes on to say, it is our job to bring everything in our lives in line with the thrust or direction of the gospel. We are to think out its implications in every area of our life and seek to bring our thinking, our feeling, and our behavior in line. That's what it means to be servants of truth. We are servants of the king as well. Verse 15 But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for who? For God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Paul is a specially commissioned servant of the king, the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, to be a minister of deliverer Jesus to the Gentiles and the priestly service of God. In Redeemer Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I will speak of what the deliverer has accomplished through me by word, deeds, signs, wonders, and the Spirit. I have fulfilled the ministry, the work. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. I mean, who does Paul live for? <laughs> Is there any question? Who do you live for? Is there any question? You see, the, the king that we serve came not to be served, but to serve. This king we have wrapped a towel around his waist and washed feet during this time of communion that we're about to celebrate. This king suffered while we were still his enemies, when we were the weak ones. His schedule wasn't too full. The apostolic softball team wasn't crowding him out from being with the sick. He had eyes to see those around him, to really see them. The single-mindedness of Paul, of Jesus, is something that we sorely need in this place and in this city. 
I pray that we would be as unstoppable as Paul. And we will be when we recognize that we are servants always. A posture of service towards those around us at the pleasure of our King. And when we preach the Gospel as servants in the priestly service, as witnesses, we see our last identity. We are sent by the Holy Spirit as witnesses. We are sent by the Spirit to restore all things to God through Jesus Christ. If you haven't seen the comprehensive nature yet of what we do as Christians, I'm sorry. Restore all things to God through Christ Jesus. First, we are witnesses of the glory of God. Verse 9, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. I already mentioned uh, this one, and I'll do it briefly. This is Psalm 18, right? As we glorify a God of mercy, behind and before the single mouth by which believing Jews and Gentiles glorify God, that single mouth of the Messiah who makes known the name of God to them, right? But then there's a, a, another psalm, right? Verse 10. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This comes from Deuteronomy 32 43, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy. The Song of Moses instructs Israel and the nations, both Israel and the whole world, to learn this one lesson. Are you ready? Salvation follows judgment. Salvation follows judgment. Paul uses the single statement in the Song of Moses that holds out the hope of salvation for the Gentiles. You read the rest of it, there's not a whole lot of hope for the world. This one verse, all the hope. All of it packed into here. This promise of salvation spoken by Moses in the song is now spoken to the Gentiles. Unless you're a Jew in here, that's us. Okay? Spoken now to us by the risen Deliverer. Judgment has been passed. The Messiah now invites us to salvation. So, having confessed God and singing praises to God's name among the Gentiles, telling us His name, and then inviting us into salvation by that name, the Deliverer also calls on us to join with Him in singing. That's praise song in verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. It's a command. Praise the Lord, you guys. Praise Him and let all the peoples extol Him. Why? Why should we praise Him? It's a good question to ask, right? Thank you. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 117, gives the reason and ground for the praise for which it calls. Psalm 117 has a universal scope in mind. It's speaking to the whole world. The Lord's saving mercy and enduring faithfulness embrace the nations. The Deliverer, our Messiah, our Christ, His call to the Gentiles rests on this saving mercy and enduring faithfulness. If you know the mercy of God and if you have hope in Him, you will join in singing with Him. That's where He's going. This is what the risen Christ says to us. And Paul shifts on the last one, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In Him will the Gentiles hope. Paul has spoken of Jesus as the Messiah the Deliverer, Redeemer. But remember, He's a King. He's a King. So now in Isaiah, Paul tells us that this Messiah, this new David, has arisen to rule. He's here to have His way. He's a King. But listen, Jesus doesn't rule by the sword, right? Jesus rules by His resurrection from the dead. All the way back to the beginning. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand, all these things that came before, through His prophets, all these things that came before in the Scriptures, concerning His Son who has 
descended from David. That's why he's the one used in these psalms. According to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power. According to the Spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Lord and King. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. It's been his argument since day one. The nations enter into the salvation that he brings as they place their hope in him. It is in this way that they submit to him. Paul's mission of affecting the obedience of faith, verse 5, chapter 1, is embedded in this Isaiah quotation. The priestly service that we have, the priestly service that you have to go to the nations to go to your neighbors, your co-workers, is to give them hope and to bring them under the rulership of Christ. They come together. But this rulership, again, not by the sword, but by the resurrection. And, and why? Verse 8. I tell you that Christ became a servant. How fantastic is this? Jesus is a witness to the glory of God and he calls us to this witness as well as a servant. He worked, ate, interacted among the people, living in such a way that those around him could see and experience what God was truly like. We are witnesses to the glory of God. He's proclaimed the name. He's given salvation. He calls us to sing with him. We enter under his rulership together and with those that he redeems. Finally, we are witnesses of the love of God. Verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. What's he quoting? Isaiah 52. The suffering servant. It was the love of God that drove the suffering servant. We are witnesses of the love of God because we see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. What they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. They're witnesses to the love of God. A song that we have played on occasion called Suffering Servant ends this way. He offered up his soul to death. He poured it out till none was left. He died, but now shall rise and surely see. The many he has righteous made and satisfied his work surveyed. The man of sorrows evermore shall be. On high exalted lifted up, the righteous servant raised above. His mighty hand shall work the will of God. The nations All shall hear and see, astonished at his victory. The kings of men will shut their mouths and all. We bear witness as hope-filled, resurrected kingdom citizens, helping people know, love, and obey Jesus as king. Overall, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that we have the benefit of time to be able to look back on all that was written for our instruction, to know who you are, Father, even more so that you put on flesh, the Word became 
flesh. You made your dwelling amongst us. You walked with us. Father, you died for us. You were raised to life again. Father, you raise us to life now. Father, as we think about who we want to be as refuge, as we jump back into Peter next week, I pray that you will help us see this culture in and through every single person in these pews today. Father, let us all hold each other to this as we bear and build for one another. As we follow the example given us and no one better than Jesus Christ. That we might know who you are. That we might give you glory. That we would serve you well. And that we would stand before a lost and dying world with the only hope there is. Father, help us love one another well. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.